Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13 is our text for today. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. It's on page 933 in your pew Bible. The hymn that we sang was written by Charles Wesley. Uh, Charles Wesley was a 18th century English minister who was the 18th son, uh, the youngest son and 18th child, actually, of the Wesleys. His mom, you might have heard of, was Susanna Wesley. His father was Samuel. Uh, talk about a lot of children. And yet God greatly blessed that family, especially through godly parenting. And uh, Charles Wesley uh, did ministry with his brother John, and they had uh, a great worldwide ministry. And Charles was gifted when it came to writing hymns. Uh, he loved to communicate the gospel through hymns, so much so that he wrote over 6,500 of them. Uh, 4,500 of them were actually published, and 3,000 some were still in manuscript form when he died. Uh, Charles Wesley is believed by many to be, because of the content and the number of hymns he wrote, probably the most prolific hymn writer in history. As I thought about Charles Wesley and some of his other hymns, hymns including Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood, and Christ the Lord is Risen Today, and so many other hymns, I thought of how Charles Wesley, like King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, served the purpose of God in his own generation. And that's what each of us are called to do. And in Christ, we have our perfect example. For as we were reminded moments ago through our observance of the Lord's Supper, even the Son of Man did not come to, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All Christians are called to serve, to follow in the footsteps in our Savior in this regard. Yet some are called to do this in a more official capacity. And they are called deacons. Their qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. And again, that is our text for today. It's on page 933 in the Pew Bible. And I invite you to follow along as I read this portion of God's Word. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, last week we looked at the qualifications for overseers, uh, which we are reminded from the New Testament. That term is interchangeable with the terms pastors and elders. So pastors are elders, elders are overseers, overseers are elders and pastors. Those terms are interchangeable referring to the pastoral leadership of the church. And God has set down qualifications for any man who would serve in such a capacity. And now Paul is moving on to another set of qualifications for deacons. 
Deacons, he says, likewise, like the elders, must be dignified. Uh, he goes on to say they must prove themselves blameless, just like the elders. In fact, there's really no distinction in terms of the character between a deacon and an elder. The only real essential difference between these two offices in terms of qualifications is that a pastor, elder, overseer must be able to teach. A deacon doesn't have to be able to teach, but he must evidence the godly character of a man who is in line with God and his word. The reason we had Peter and Hannah come up here to read a portion of Acts 6 is that gives us a little bit of a historical backdrop to the ministry of the deacons in the New Testament. Um, We are going to look at the qualifications, but I think Acts 6 helps us set the stage. Uh, As you recall from the reading moments ago, um, the seven men that were appointed there were given responsibility for feeding widows who had been neglected. Uh, The text reveals why the office of deacon was created. It's important to remember that those seven are not called deacons. Uh, Sometimes they're referred to as the prototype for the New Testament deacon. But this passage explains why that office was created in the first place. The apostles explained quite eloquently, both negatively and positively, why shepherds need to be relieved of the practical needs of the congregation. In Acts 6-2, the apostles state the need negatively. Did you catch it? They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word, uh, that expression, serve tables, is the Greek word diakonane, which is related to the word deacon. It means uh, serving tables or a table servant. The apostles weren't saying that that didn't need to be done. It did need to be done. But they said it's not right for us to leave the ministry of preaching God's word to do that. Then they state the need positively in verse 4. But we, meaning the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles' plan called for the appointment of seven men who would look after the distribution of food to the widows who had been neglected. And these were not just any men, but we read in Acts 6 that these were men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And by by solving the problem this way, the apostles formed a a new body of church officials. Uh, There were two categories here in this passage. There were the apostles and there were the seven. The apostles primarily had a speaking ministry. They were given to prayer and to the ministry of God's word. Uh, The seven who were appointed to look after the widows had a serving ministry primarily. Some of them ended up being great teachers, but their assigned ministry was primarily serving. I find it interesting that when the apostle Peter is writing to believers in general, he essentially breaks down all ministry in the church into into these two basic categories. He says in 1 Peter 4.11, If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And since spiritual priorities and practical needs are always existing in every church, 
it would be quite natural for the New Testament churches to, to duplicate what was done in the church at Jerusalem. When you think about it, the elders, pastors, overseers, like the apostles, are given primarily to a speaking ministry. Uh, they pray for God's people. They minister the word to God's people through their preaching and teaching and biblical counseling and other capacities. The deacons are like the seven in Acts 6, meaning they assist the elders by helping to meet the practical needs in the congregation. The practical needs include the care of widows and the ministry of benevolence in general, but they also encompass much more than that. The needs of the church go beyond that. John MacArthur writes, quote, No specifics are given in Scripture as to the duties of deacons. They were to carry out whatever tasks were assigned to them by the elders or needed by the congregation, end quote. Alexander Strauch refers to them as the formal assistants to the elders. In terms of emphases, Jamie Dunlop provides a helpful framework of church ministry as a whole, saying that the elders are to lead ministry, deacons are to facilitate the ministry, and the members of the congregation are to do the ministry. Phil Riken writes, Whatever deacons do, the Bible leaves the church to decide. The Bible only dictates how they are to behave, end quote. And so let's look at their requirements because that is the emphasis of Scripture. Scripture doesn't emphasize so much what deacons do. It's just that they serve, but the requirements are clearly spelled out. As is the case with overseers, character counts. And again, there's just that one essential difference that a deacon doesn't have to be able to teach whereas an elder does. But he must evidence godly character. And if you look at the, the, the list of qualifications here in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 12, you would see essentially that it falls into four areas that, that I just remember this way. Uh, personal piety, doctrinal devotion, adequate assessment, and faithful family life. I'll say that one more time. Personal piety, doctrinal devotion, adequate assessment, and faithful family life. I think you'll see that all of these qualifications fall into those areas. So let's consider first, verse 8, their personal piety. Paul begins by saying, deacons likewise, meaning like the elders, must be dignified. That word in the Greek carries a, a sense of weightiness meaning worthy of respect. And so the idea is that a deacon is not to be goofy. <laughs> He's not to be a silly man who is constantly making a joke or making light of serious things. It doesn't mean that a deacon should be dour and sour, as it's been said, like he's been baptized in pickle juice. <laughs> but he's a man who understands the seriousness of life. He understands the heartaches that people go through, the losses, the difficulties, the challenges, the temptations, the hard times. He knows that life is hard and that life can be rife with trouble. You know, uh, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, in his prophetic description of the Messiah, what does he say about him? He says that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
That's the mark of a good deacon. He's dignified in the sense that he doesn't treat as silly the serious matters of life. He is acquainted with sorrow. He understands the sufferings of people. And because he does that, uh, he takes life seriously. And because he takes life seriously, he's dignified. He has earned the respect of those he influences. Now, after giving this, this initial positive quality, Paul goes on to state three negatives, uh, three qualities that deacons should not be. He says they are not to be double-tongued. We know what that means. It's saying one thing to one person and saying something else to another person. And it's easy to do when you're constantly interacting with people. We've all heard the expression of TMI, right? What does it stand for? Too much information. We can share too much information either to or about the people that we're serving. And so a deacon needs to be able to guard his tongue from simply talking too much about other people and their problems. He also needs to guard his ear because he's also listening to what other people say. And they might be given to gripe or to complaining or to slandering or to gossip. And believers are not to participate in those sorts of things. And because of the weakness of our human flesh, some of this talk, if we're not careful, can even occur in deacons' meetings. Which is why, as iron sharpens iron, brothers are to hold one another accountable in this regard. It's been said that gossip is saying something to a, to, behind a person's back that you would never say to their face. And flattery is saying something to somebody's face that you would never say behind their back. And all of this is part of unwholesome talk that is not to characterize the servants of the Lord. It shouldn't characterize any Christian, and it should certainly not characterize those who are, who are to be an example to others. And so a deacon is not to be double-tongued. Secondly, he's not to be addicted to much wine. Deacons must exhibit self-control, not only in their speech, but also in their appetites. They must not indulge cravings. They must not abuse substances that would enslave their heart or cause their judgment to be impaired. The New Testament deacon, a book written by Alexander Strout, in that book he reminds us of a sad reality that we already know, but I think needs to be emphasized again, even as we looked at this quality in terms of elders. Alexander Strauch writes this, Drunkenness has ruined countless lives. It is commonly reported that nearly half of the murders, suicides, and accidental deaths in America are related to alcohol. One in four families has some problem with alcohol, making alcohol one of the largest health problems in America. The misery and heartbreak that alcoholism has caused multitudes of families is beyond imagination. It reduces life expectancy. It breaks up families. It destroys people financially. It's a moral and spiritual problem of the greatest magnitude. No one who has worked with the people or families who are its victims, joke about alcohol's destructive power. And there are some of you in this congregation today that have known the horrific, destructive influence of alcohol. In my previous church, 
I did a funeral for a 15-year-old girl who was killed in the middle of the night with two of her friends in the same car because they were leaving a party in the middle of the night doing an alcohol run with a guy who was already drunk and he was the one driving. He survived, but all three girls with him, age 15, were killed. And the one belonged to our church, or at least she had belonged to our church. Her parents had actually been very involved. They had even been involved in the music team. They were plugged into all sorts of ministries. But over time, they began to fade away from the church. And as we pursued them, as we would cross paths with them, we would urge them to come back. We could tell that they were slipping from the church into the world. And I remember that it was near July 4th. I was talking to the father. We were doing an evangelistic outreach on the beach. And I crossed paths with the father, and I urged him to return to the Lord and to the church. And he said, Pastor Matt, I know we're not really where we should be right now, but to be honest, life is actually going pretty good for us. I'm earning quite a bit of money. We're doing lots of things. We'll get back to church eventually, but it's just not a good season for us. And soon thereafter, his daughter was killed at a party in the middle of the night. It was probably the hardest call that I ever got in my pastoral ministry in terms of a middle-of-the-night visit. At 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone rang, It was right next to my bed, and I picked up the phone, and the first words that I heard was, Pastor Matt, and I can't even say it how he did. I'll simply quote to you what he said. Pastor Matt, she's dead. Oh my God, my daughter is dead. Pastor Matt, come over, please. My daughter is dead. And he hung up the phone. I didn't even know who it was. Then I realized it was this man who had been given to alcohol. And now his daughter had paid the price. I went over there. We ended up, you know, doing the funeral. It was just uh, an awful week of sorrow in that regard. And the family ended up setting up a scholarship fund, a memorial fund of sorts, to, to help troubled kids in high school. And it was set up in the daughter's name. And a couple of years later, the dead girl's father was arrested because he was caught embezzling massive amounts from his own daughter's memorial account to continue to support his alcohol and drug habit. He wound up in jail. His wife ended up divorcing him, and I would go to visit him time to time in prison. Brothers and sisters, beware of the dangers of alcohol. The Bible does not command abstinence, but it certainly commands against drunkenness and it warns us of the dangers of alcohol. In fact, it's interesting uh, in this verse where it says that a deacon is not to be addicted to much wine. You know what the word addicted means? Because a lot of people would say, well, I'm not addicted. I mean, I enjoy a drink, but I'm not addicted. The word addicted is the Greek word prosecco, which literally means to turn one's mind to. To turn one's mind to. It's where your thought goes. So let me ask you this, since this is the qualification. When you're thinking about getting home from work at the end of a long day, where does your mind turn to? When you're looking forward to getting together with friends over the weekend, what are you thinking about? Where does your mind go to? When you're facing a a, a difficult situation and you don't know how to get through it, where does your mind go to? 
When you hear distressing news and you're having a hard time coping with it, where does your mind go to? When he says not addicted to alcohol, your mind doesn't turn to alcohol. It doesn't revert to that when it comes to challenges in life. Do not be drunk with wine, Scripture says, but be filled with the Spirit. Deacons understand the dangerous and destructive influence of alcohol. They may well minister to families who have suffered the fallout from that. And so they do not want to become intoxicated with wine. Instead, they desire to be filled with the Spirit, exercising self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, and setting a godly example for others to follow. Next, a deacon is not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, Paul's already said that one aspiring to the office of elder is not to be a lover of money. Again, we looked at these qualities last week, and you can see they're essentially the same for deacons. Here it says, not greedy for dishonest gain. And it's easy to see why that this quality is listed here, because the nature of diaconal work involves handling funds, distributing funds to those who are in need. If a person is greedy he may find a way to help himself to what's there. If you recall in the Gospels, that's exactly what Judas Iscariot did, remember? He was the treasurer of the twelve. He was the one who kept the money box, and what did he do? We read that he used to pilfer what was put in there to help out the needy. Some deacons may not steal money for themselves, but they love the power of the purse. They love controlling these funds. And they can use it if they're not careful individually, certainly not as a board, but as an individual deacon, maybe to try to manipulate or control people depending on how their vote goes with how the money's going to be used. And that would be a betrayal of the office of deacon. One commentator writes, by definition, a deacon is someone who serves, not someone who helps himself. In the use of money, as in the use of words and alcohol, a deacon must lead a dignified life. End quote. Well, after listing these three negative qualities, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, Paul then states a positive quality for deacons in verse 9. 1 Timothy 3, 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, when we, we look there at the word mystery, uh, he's not talking about like a whodunit sort of a thing, right? Like a mystery novel we might read today. Uh, typically, we think of a mystery as, as something that's extremely puzzling and difficult, if not impossible, to figure out. But in Scripture, the word mystery refers to a divine truth that was once hidden but is now revealed. And really in the New Testament, it centers on the gospel of Jesus Christ. How all the prophecies, all the promises of the Old Testament that people couldn't fully figure out are fully met in Jesus Christ. He, he is the key to the puzzle, if you were. He, he is the center of Scripture story. Um, we haven't even have it in our doctrinal statement that all Scripture is a testimony to Christ. Jesus Christ said the same to his disciples after his resurrection. The mystery of all mysteries is the eternal plan that God has revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul uses this word mystery in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, where he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the 
revealing of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. All the promises of God in Christ are yes, and in Him they are amen to the glory of God through us. That is the previously hidden but now revealed truth of the New Testament. It all centers on Jesus Christ. And so deacons are to hold this mystery. They must hold the mystery of the faith, this body of doctrine that we have in Scripture with a clear conscience. They show this by their manner of living, and by their ministry to others. They show by these things that they cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they cling to all of Scripture since all of Scripture is a testimony to Christ. Deacons do this with a clear conscience. They ought to be able to say, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 1.12, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings. We have depended on God's grace, not our own human wisdom. That is how we have conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you, meaning believers in the church. Boy, every Christian should strive for such a testimony, shouldn't we? To have this kind of a clear conscience, to have a God-given holiness and sincerity in all our dealings with the world and especially with believers. Every Christian should strive for that kind of testimony, but deacons must have that kind of testimony because they're servant leaders in the church and eyes are upon them and they influence others for good or for ill. You say, well, I, I, I think I have that testimony. That's good. But it's not enough to say this about yourself. The pastors and elders of the church and even your fellow members ought to be able to affirm this same thing about you. And that leads us to the, to the third category, the third requirement, adequate assessment. Uh, we've considered the deacon's personal piety. Uh, we've looked at his doctrinal devotion. And now we come to the adequate assessment of such a person. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now again, Scripture's kind of vague here. It doesn't, it's not explicit regarding the nature of the testing or the length of the testing, you know, exactly what kind of testing it should be or how long the testing should last. The point is there needs to be some sort of testing before a person is placed in the office of deacon. Uh, there needs to be some manner by which we can assess his character and, and, and he can show himself to be faithful. Uh, some way of getting a feel for this person to see if he's truly qualified for the office. Paul indicates in verse 11 that this same standard applies to women. Look at verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, there's been a, a controversy among churches for many, many years, even centuries, over the translation of that verse. Um, obviously, the ESV says, wives of deacons, but it can also be translated women. So is he talking about the wives of deacons, or is he talking about women deacons, females, deaconesses, as we might call them? Well, 
There are some good arguments on both sides, and, and godly people disagree over that. But ultimately, our authority is Scripture. And as I understand this passage, I believe that Paul is talking about women in general. And let me tell you why. Let me give you four reasons. Probably give you six or seven, but I'll give you four. First of all, if you look at the verse, in the original text, the word there isn't there. When it says their wives, it doesn't say wives uh, there. It simply says women likewise or wives likewise. So, so there's not that personal pronoun, that possessive pronoun like these women belong to the deacons. It simply says wives or women likewise. It also, to me, doesn't make sense for, for Paul now to start listing qualifications for deacons' wives when he didn't lay down any qualifications for the elders' wives. Especially when you consider how vital an elder's home life is as an overseer in the church. Thirdly, Paul uses the word likewise to transition from one group to another. When he transitioned from elders to deacons, he used the word likewise, likewise deacons. Now he's, he's transitioning from deacons to whoever this third group is. And it would seem that instead of saying elders, deacons, and then likewise their wives, he would be saying elders, deacons, and then women or female deacons. People say, well, why didn't Paul just use the word deaconess then? Why did he use the word wives or women? Well, because the word deaconess, this may come as a shock to some of you, but the word deaconess wasn't in first century Greek. There was no such word. The word diakonos was used for both men and women. And we see an example of this in Romans 16 where Phoebe is referred to as a deacon, the masculine form of the word. So using the word women was the only way that Paul could distinguish them from the men in this passage. Now, in one sense, this shouldn't really be a debate for the members here at Webster Bible Church because we already have deaconesses. Uh, we have already, in a sense, as a church, made a decision on this issue, an interpretive decision. We recognize both male deacons and female deacons, which you can tell by the suffix, deaconesses are female deacons both groups hold equal status in the church in terms of their office because they are servants to the congregation under the oversight of the elders the same could actually be said going out on a limb here for ministry leaders right we don't officially classify them as deacons or deaconesses but I believe that in terms of the function of what they do, that the same qualifications that apply to deacons and deaconesses should apply to all ministry leaders because they are servant leaders in the church. Before anyone serves as a deacon, he or she should be adequately assessed. Well, how do we do that? Well, each year at Webster Bible Church, we issue deacon and deaconess recommendation forms to the congregation. And after asking about a series of uh, probably about a dozen questions that are based on the qualifications in this passage and others, here's the final question that we ask on the form. I looked it up. Do you believe that he or she has been sufficiently tested in his or her Christian walk and has demonstrated that he or she is fully qualified to serve as a deacon or deaconess according to Scripture? End quote. 
And then after that is done, it gets turned into the elders, and we screen those recommendations based on our knowledge and interaction of these people who have been recommended. And and once we've done a review of their character and their track record in ministry, uh, we submit an approved list to the members. And then at the members meeting a few weeks later, those who are members of Webster Bible Church actually vote on their recommended list from the elders so that there is widespread affirmation among the uh, members for who serves as a deacon or deaconess at Webster Bible Church. Now, different churches may handle this differently. They may vet their deacons and deaconesses in different ways. But the point is to have some procedure in place so that the leaders and members of a congregation can make some sort of an assessment of whether a man or woman is qualified to serve in this capacity. And I think it's wonderful that the Bible puts this stipulation here for an adequate assessment. The only reason it's here is because Jesus cares about his church. He wants to make sure that there are qualified men and women in place who will care properly for the church rather than take advantage of the church or harm the church. The Lord Jesus cares deeply for his church, and so should we. Well, we've looked at personal piety, doctrinal devotion. We've looked at adequate assessment. And now finally, the fourth area of requirement is faithful family life. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. We won't spend a lot of time on this because, again, it's essentially the same requirement as it was for elders. Even that phrase, the husband of wife, let deacons be the husband of one wife, it's that same three-word Greek construction as it was for elders. Literally, it means a one-woman man. It's not talking so much about a, a person's marital status as it's talking about his devotion. It's a character quality. A deacon who is married has only eyes for one woman. And that's his wife. He is fully devoted to his wife. Furthermore, he's a good manager of the home, not only of his children, but of everything that pertains to the household. So we could add there is money and possessions, uh, family discipleship, healthy communication in the home, conflict resolution, uh, scheduling in the home. However, he works with his wife to order all these things in the domestic realm is an indication of whether or not he is qualified to manage aspects of ministry in God's house. In other words, if you wonder whether a man is ready to be a deacon, take a look at his home life. Take a look at his home life. Is he devoted to his wife? Does he teach and nurture his children? Does he treat his family members, guests in the home, co-workers, others with kindness? Is the name of Jesus Christ exalted in the home? Will a deacon say, in essence, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? A man who cannot manage his own household will ultimately bring disorder to God's house. So faithfulness starts at home. And faithfulness there leads to responsibility in bigger things in the household of God. Well, there's kind of a, a rundown through all the requirements. Again, a lot of them overlap and are very similar to what we came across in elders. But I want to finish on a positive note, as Paul does in verse 13, by focusing on the reward. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.13, For those who serve well as deacons, 
Listen, deacons, this is an encouragement. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Man, if you need encouragement or motivation to serve the Lord well, especially in the capacity of a deacon or deaconess ministry leader, this would be it. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Notice the two rewards. Number one, a good standing. A good standing. The Greek word for standing, bathmos, literally refers to the step on a stairway. So you, you think of a step and a step up. That, that's literally what the Greek word means. And Paul is using it metaphorically saying, look, these people are like a step up from most people. Not in the sense of putting them on a pedestal in a bad way, because they wouldn't seek such a thing. But so many times throughout Scripture, Paul commends faithful servants of Jesus Christ. And he says things like, honor such men, honor such women, because they are faithful to the Lord. They give sacrificially to the Lord's work. Uh, they, and sometimes even might risk their lives for the good of the flock. And so Paul wants to elevate such men and women in the eyes of the church so that they can be encouraged and respected for the work that they do. Again, not because they seek that kind of esteem, but because God delights to honor those who honor him and take good care of his church. They earn a good standing. Secondly, they also get great confidence. Great confidence. Not in themselves, but notice what it's in. It's in the faith, the truth of God's word as lived out in the company of those who believe it. That is their fellow believers, the church of God, the family of God. God's word works. When they apply these standards to their life, their manner of life, and in their ministry to others, they see for themselves experientially that God's word works. I thought of that hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. What does it say? When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Uh, we not only gain a good standing, but we also have great confidence. We already know God's word is true, but when we apply it to our lives and we live it out in our lives, it boosts our confidence all the more. We have greater confidence in the word of God and great joy in discovering its truth in our own lives and to those to whom we minister. The best servant leaders in the church know that we serve because God first served us. And that's what makes our labors for the Lord so enriching and so rewarding because he himself is ultimately our great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture which is similar in many ways to what we looked at last week. And yet it has particular application to the servant leaders here at Webster Bible Church and in all places where Christ Jesus is named in local fellowships throughout the world. Lord, we thank you for those who serve as deacon and deaconesses, ministry leaders here at Webster Bible Church. And we know that service is something that all believers are called to. So we thank you for those that serve under our ministry leaders or come alongside and help our deacons and deaconesses to minister to the needs of others. Uh, much of this ministry is so often behind-the-scenes work and so we thank you, God, for this word of encouragement to those who serve in such a capacity. I pray, Lord, that as we consider these qualifications, that, that we would seek to live up to them. 
by your grace and for the good of those who have called us to serve. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.